Thank you, Jessica. Very blessed to have your willingness to use your gifts and bless our body this morning. Appreciate that. Well, good morning. I am celebrating my body this morning. My 33-year-old body. I'm always amazed at how strong it is, how capable it is, how compassionate it is. And I'm just can't help but to celebrate it. I'm sure you all would agree. I hope you agree. Because the body I'm talking about is the body of Christ. It's this body of Christ. And if my records are correct, today is the anniversary, the 33rd anniversary of New Covenant Fellowship, the body. You, the body. So enough about me. I was going to say, if I kept looking over there at Kirk for reassurance because I thought... I could really be making a fool out of myself if today is not the anniversary of this body. Won't be the first time, but it is the uh, anniversary. So congratulations and celebrate God's goodness in our body. Um, Yeah, we're in Matthew chapter 4. And... uh, You'll have to forgive me. I actually pulled out last week's sermon out of my Bible and I have to find this week's sermon. That's not it. I got to get rid of these old sermons in here. We are in Matthew chapter four this morning and we have been looking at uh, the providential capabilities of God's timing. And we may be looking at that again this morning. Here. No, I have it here. But uh, good. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the same text, but we're going to make a transition from from uh, contemplating God's providence in time to looking at God's providential control and plan concerning location. So not only does he have a divine plan for uh, the, the timing of things, he also has a divine plan in where. He locates or plants people geographically. So that's what we're going to do when we follow the steps of Christ this morning. But as we do that, we want to be thinking in our own minds, you know, why am I here at this specific location? What is, yeah, you know, we make decisions, but what is the divine purpose for me being in this specific location? Because God has a divine plan and locations and the reason people are at specific places at specific times play a tremendous importance in the plan of God. Just out of curiosity, out of everybody that's here this morning, how many people were actually born in Nottaway or a a surrounding county? Okay, less than half of you. So a good question to ask is, what are you doing here? What does God have? Why are you here? You're not where you were born. You know, I am not. I've actually lived here longer now than I did where I was brought up in Maryland. 
There's something behind that. There's a reason that you are here this morning and not just in this county, not that you moved to this location, but you are in this specific body that is celebrating his 33rd birthday or anniversary this morning. Why is that? We want to be thinking about the providence of God in our lives as we track the steps of Jesus this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and read verses 12 through 17 in chapter 4. Talking about Jesus. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death On them, a light has dawned from that time. Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What we want to do, what we want to pay attention to this morning in this text is where Jesus did and did not minister or the places that Jesus did and did not minister and may and why this may be important. So Jesus Uh, Notice John is arrested and he's arrested by Herod. We looked at this last week and Jesus does not with this news run to Jerusalem for safety in fear of Herod. Now, why is that? And why does Jesus travel north instead of to the city of Jerusalem to begin his ministry? So what's going on here? Well, there's nothing random. I know by now, you know, there's nothing random in the way that God does things. I think, you know, that theologically. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know, that experientially, there's just nothing random in the way God does things. Every place that Jesus sets his foot is by divine decree. I love the Proverbs. that says man makes his plans, but God directs his steps because you have these two very These two realities working concurrently, we think and and we make reasonable, logical or even emotional plans and steps. And yet over our will uh, is God's will. And somehow, though, we think these things and we are accountable for them and they're very real and they make an impact and they count and they matter our thoughts and our actions. God's will somehow superimposes sovereignly and providentially the will of man so that. Man fits into God's will perfectly and everything just goes perfectly the way God intends, even evil. Not that God wills, uh, not that he ordains evil, so to speak, or creates evil. But even the messes that we get ourselves into, just they go right with the flow. And Jesus is going places here. He's traveling places. He's thinking through things. And the places that his feet take him are by divine decree. And so God's purpose is being served. His purpose is being served now that John is incarcerated. His purpose is being served now that Jesus launches into his ministry and follows these travel plans, if you will. Well, Jesus is not running from Herod, the Tetrarch in fear. We learned that last week. And he's not scared of the Jews. When his time comes, To suffer at the hand of the Jews, as we sung about in one of our songs this morning. He'll face that. He'll he'll face that. 
And he's not running from Herod. As a matter of fact, if he's running from Herod, he wouldn't go north. He would go to Jerusalem. But he goes to Galilee. And as he goes to Galilee, he is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, about an 800-year-old prophecy. And he's going to this place known as a place of darkness, this region of the promised land. And he is the great light, Isaiah says. This is the fulfillment. He is the great light that shines in the great darkness. So what I want to do is look at some of these places and consider some of these places in Galilee, in the area of Galilee, and their importance, why Jesus may have gone there. What's the strategy of God? And in the meantime, in the back of our minds, we might, be, want, we might to, want to be thinking, yeah, God, I, you do have me planted here. Maybe it's for a week, a day, or for the rest of my life. I don't know. But, but it's more than just while well, I moved here to get a job or I, I'm here because this is where I was born and raised. It's more than that if you're a Christian. There's divine reasons for these things. So Galilee goes north to the land of Galilee. Uh, when I was a little kid, there was a song by Peter, Paul and Mary. Very, very catchy tune. And I learned it by heart called Puff the Magic Dragon. And uh, whenever I think about the land of Galilee... I think about this song because I wrongly understood the chorus of this song and wrongly sang it throughout my childhood. And it says, Puff the magic dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanalee. And I thought they were saying in the land of Galilee. And so I would, as a kid, go, Puff the magic dragon, he's in the land of Galilee. And I made that biblical connection. And it was wrong. And, uh, there's absolutely no association to our text this morning, but it's just a childhood memory that I had as I thought about, yeah, good old Galilee. I've got that childhood memory of Puff the Magic Dragon. But the Hebrew word for Galilee actually has to do or means circle because the region of Galilee kind of circled around the, the Sea of Galilee in the northern parts of the land of Israel. Uh, the Sea of Galilee now is called Lake Tiberias. It's actually a lake. And um, it's about 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. And from certain strategic points, you can actually see the whole thing. So it's not that big. And it's a freshwater lake. And so why do they call it the Sea of Galilee? Scholars say it's just a, a tradition. And so uh, somebody way, way, way long ago looked at it and said, oh, look at that sea. And it stuck. But it's actually a lake located in the north. And so you have we're thinking about Jerusalem and Judea and the wilderness where John is. And if you go a little farther north, you have in the center or sandwiched between the two Samaria. And then you have the northern part of Galilee. In order to get to Galilee, you have to pass through or circumvent some kind of way. Samaria, it's in the it's uh, far north. And you might be familiar with the Old Testament where. We'll talk about as far as Dan and Beersheba, those cities there. It's the very, very, in other words, this, we're pushing the borders of the boundaries of the promised land of God. Galilee, in Jesus' day, it was a very popular place. And it was popular for very many reasons. I mean, it had a lot of things going for it. First of all, it was a major travel route and a major trade route 
Uh, it's kind of like our I-95. If you're in the south or north and you want to go one direction or other, that's the route that you would take. People do business. There's lots of trucks on this route. We visit family and so forth by taking this route. And so it even had the name the Way of the Sea. So it was a well-known um, place and a well-traveled road and route. Whereas Jerusalem was more off the beaten path. It's a city on the hill, but it, it really, you, you, you had to have a purpose for going there. You wouldn't just pass by there for any reason. Uh, one scholar said Judea, that is in the south, is on the way to nowhere. And Galilee is on the way to everywhere. So you, you get an idea contrasting Jerusalem and Judea to Galilee, this place that Jesus is ministering. Secondly, it was very popular because of how fertile it was. I mean, th this is a kind of area where even people that don't have a green thumb can go out there and put things in this very fertile soil and they're just going to grow tremendously. As a matter of fact, to this very day, it's that region that Israel gets the majority of its produce to feed its own people in the area of Tel Aviv. So it's a very, very fertile ground. It's a popular place, very well-traveled place, a very busy place. And it's quite a contrast because John the Baptist began and ministered in the wilderness, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And here's Jesus beginning, for the most part, uh, his ministry in a very happening place, a very popular place. But here's what's, I think, the most interesting about this region. It's not just the geographics, their logistics, but it's it's the way that the people thought the mindset of the Galileans, because they are on the fringes of the land of Israel. They're not in in the heart, you might say, and it's a, a little bit like our land here in the north or south on the east coast. We have places that are considered the Bible Belt. If you're in these states, you're in the Bible Belt, you'll be treated differently. There really is a different mindset. I've been in the north and I've been in the south and farther south than Virginia. It's even some would say worse and some would say it's even better in the Bible Belt. Uh, you're treated with more kindness and respect and it's the southern tradition. But it's that science, the same kind of thing here we're talking about and the differences between um, Jerusalem or Judea and Galilee. The, the Jewish lifestyle there was just a little different. Um, and even in our day, we you know, we live. Gosh, this election is really challenging us as a nation. Uh, you know, how united are we? Because it has brought out all of these differences and we need to really remember that we have a lot of things in common as United States. And, yeah, if you go to the north, if you look politically, they think different than the people in the south. They have different ideas of how the country should be run, how people should be treated, what rights we should and shouldn't have. As far as, you know, you might say liberals versus conservative and all over the nation. But there's a lot of things that they have in common. But there's big differences there. And so when you go north, there are big difference, differences there in mindset, in practices, in religion, and really in your Jewishness. Now, to give you an idea of how, what people thought of Galilee in that day, the historian Josephus, who wrote around the times of Jesus, says this about 
Galilee. They were fond of innovations. They liked change. They liked new things. They were fond of innovations and by nature disposed to change. And they delighted in seditions. So they didn't mind new things. Bring it on. I like new ideas. I don't like stale old things. I'm open to these. That they weren't as confined spiritually as you were if you lived closer to Jerusalem. um, Where... The Jewish leaders really kept tabs on everything and tried to maintain their control over your life and how you lived it and how you worshiped God. It was looser here in Galilee. So they were more open minded, but also they were prone, he says, to seditions, mean, meaning they weren't opposed to revolutions. They were maybe quicker to jump on board with revolutions or different ideas. We have places in our country That if something happens in certain cities, say, that they don't like, you can just count on a riot. That's just what they're going to do. It's just a a rioting kind of city. And so law enforcement's always trying to to prevent that or plan for it because there are are other other cities in our country that's not that way. If things happen that they don't appreciate, they don't react in that. So there are people groups, there are mindsets that actually have those kind of tendencies. Today, if you want to start something new or start a revolution, a good place to pick up followers is a college campus. Because, you know, you got these students and they're very open-minded and they're learning all this new stuff. And they're learning to think on their own. But unfortunately, we can be swayed very easily by something we think is very attractive. And so you would go maybe because there's a rebel without a cause. And that's kind of the idea with Galilee. Uh, so if you want to disagree with somebody and get find you an army, find your people that will stand by your side, you go to Galilee and whoop up an army there. Well, Jesus isn't there to find an angry army. We know that. That's not the kind of revolution that he's looking for. But scholars say that there's a there's a strategy here and why Jesus is really opening up his his can of ministry, you might say, in the northern parts. He's opening it up among a people that are open to new things that are not so stuck with tradition, because Jesus has come to show that a lot of the traditions that his people have been practicing are off base. They're just wrong. And they are confining and they are binding and they are leading people away from God instead of to God. And so he's among a people that will perhaps embrace these ideas and this new way of thinking that has the tradition scratching their head. How can this be a man of God? He's saying these things. He's not keeping our traditions. He needs somebody open minded that's not so stuck in their ways that they can see the light and see the truth. So there's a strategy here. There are certain kind of people that he is ministering to. There's a big difference, though, in these people. And just to give you an idea, right in this text, there's a dig in this text. And Matthew describes these people in the north as uh, the land of the Gentiles, the way by the sea, the land of the Gentiles. Now, if you're a Jew, you don't you do not want to be associated with Gentiles. And yet. There are Jewish, there's Jewish population here in Galilee, a strong Jewish population, but yet they're personified or labeled as being more Gentile than Jewish. So that's how different things were just in that short distance geographically. 
We know the way that they became like Gentiles. And I mentioned it last week. They forsook God back in the days of the divided kingdom, back in the times when uh, Jonah, the prophet Jonah was ministering. And Corky's teaching that in Sunday school. They forsook him. And, of course, Zebulun and Naphtali, they had the northern areas and they went in there. They're supposed to drive the pagans out. They didn't. They did business with them. Then they intermarried with them. And then the they became more like Gentiles than Jews. There wasn't this big difference anymore. So this is a land of the Gentiles here. Jesus is ministering in that area. The Jewishness, you might say, for lack of better terms, kind of watered down. Not as strict, not as confining there. And Jesus uses this mindset to his advantage. Of course, we know that when he does minister in Jerusalem, the leaders, very few are open-minded enough to the truth because they are so steeped. And we'll actually close by considering that mindset. So they're open to change. And Jesus goes there. In fact, in Luke 4, 14, he says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So this is, this is a divine thing. It's a Spirit-led thing that Jesus begins his ministry with the people in the north. So, again, God's plan, uh, relocating people, bringing people to certain places. What's the divine purpose that we have? Why does God have me here? And, you, and obvious reason is, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. And that certainly was God's divine plan. But before that or after that and during that, what exactly is my purpose in this location? Now, we all share a similar purpose. And we'll get to that as well. He goes to the north. Now, in that region of Galilee is Nazareth. And that's the next geographical location or text. He goes to Nazareth. Nazareth, we know about that. Nazareth, say that five times without trying to get a lip in your mouth. Five times the fifth if you can. <coughs> Nazareth. He goes to Nazareth. That's his hometown. That's where he was raised. But he doesn't stay there. It says leaving Nazareth. So what happened? Matthew doesn't tell us. And we have to go to, um, to Luke chapter 4 to see what happens. Why wasn't he there? You know, we don't know a lot about his childhood. We just get the idea that he, he grew up. He was a fine young man. Everybody liked him like everybody else. He didn't really ruffle anybody's feathers until he launched his ministry. So they welcome him. But something happens there. And he's, he's no longer welcome in his hometown. And we find that something in Luke chapter 4. Not going to spend a lot of time there. But what happened is he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth, and he's attending synagogue like any young Jewish man would do. And he's asked to read a text out of a scroll. It's the text of Isaiah. And that's how things worked in synagogue. Sometimes you were invited to read the word of God. And Luke foretells us this in 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I'm sure they all said, Amen, Hallelujah, praise God. And that was a great passage, one of my favorite. And then Jesus goes back and he, he sits 
back down his place. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. He sits down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Those words turn the whole town against him. Because what he is saying is, I just read to you prophecy about the Messiah to come. And I am he. And they're like, you can't do that. (laughs) You're not the Messiah. Uh, you, You can't apply the scripture like that. That's not what we were expecting when we handed you this scroll. He's making the claim that he is the Messiah. Says in verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of town, brought him to the brow of the hill, which their town was built. So that they could throw him down the cliff. So there's their hometown guy and they are wanting to kill him. Turned against him. But wasn't Jesus' time. So he passes through all these angry faces and just makes his way safely to another location. A prophet is without honor in his own hometown. So he goes to Capernaum. What is Capernaum? Capernaum actually is in Scripture quite a bit. We won't talk about that a little bit. And it plays an important part in redemptive history. I want to make sure I didn't hear water splashing over the edge of the baptistry. Uh, Capernaum, actually, I wasn't going to bring this up, but Corky brought it up in Sunday school this morning because he said the the name Nahum, the prophet Nahum, means, what did you say? Comfort means comfort, compassion. And that's actually what... um, Capernaum means, and some say it may have been named after the prophet Nahum, but we don't know for sure. Jesus spent a lot of time in Capernaum, a lot of time. As a matter of fact, I think it's in, in uh, chapter 9 of Matthew, it's called his city. So he was known to spend a lot of time there, and he performed a lot of miracles. A lot of the miracles that we read about Jesus performing, we just assume, well, it's right there in Jerusalem. It's not. A lot of the miracles he performed were outside of Jerusalem. So he spent a lot of time there, did great work there. Why did he hang out in Capernaum so much? Well, it wasn't because necessarily they were so receptive to the truth they weren't. Later on, he'll pronounce a judgment against them. Like, you guys really are blind because if Sodom and Gomorrah had the light and the signs that you had, whew. So he pronounces the judgment. So then why would he be there? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that in Jerusalem, uh, he would always be looking over his shoulder. Because with John the Baptist out of the picture, Jesus is their main enemy. He's the one who's making disciples and in their mind leading people away from the faith. So he can minister there, do his miracles there, preach the message that God has given them there without the worry of looking over his shoulder All the time because it was not yet time for him to be taken captive. This is a slap in the face, really, to the Jewish mindset that someone that would call themselves the Messiah would even be from a place like this. That would even minister in a place like Capernaum, Galilee. And that's why in John 4... Some of the Jewish leaders said, is this the Christ to come from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. 
It just goes against the grain of the status quo of thinking. And those, those guys up there, they're fishermen. They're farmers. What do they know about the faith? What do they know about the scrolls? They don't know the laws like we do. It's surely if a Messiah is going to come into the world, he will come into this place where the great minds of the faith are in Jerusalem, where the temple, the very presence of God is. Where people obey the law strictly and show their love to God by walking in obedience. Surely if the Messiah will come, he will come in a place like this, the most sacred of places. It was just unthinkable for him to be hanging there and to call himself the Messiah. But sadly, the leaders of Israel were not as in tune with God as they would have liked to think that they were. And Jesus will later call them blind guides. They were actually very, very clueless. John MacArthur says, in the sovereign grace, God will do the unexpected, not mainly to the Jewish aristocrats, but to the downcast, to the mocked, to the afflicted, to the despised, to the ignorant, to the non-ritualistic, to the mixed multitude of Galilee. To them did he send his son. To those in the greatest darkness, he sent the greatest light. That's the grace of our God, and it was in and around Galilee. There is Jesus ministering in this place that the Jews were not very fond of. But this is a good time to make a transition to another place that's not mentioned in Matthew, but it's mentioned in the other Gospels. And that's the place of Samaria. Jesus also ministered in Samaria. And I began the sermon by saying we want to notice the importance of where Jesus did and did not minister. There's a very, very popular verse in John 4:35, and perhaps you can finish it for me. But it says, Jesus is speaking. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Great missionary verse. Great evangelistic verse. We use it all the time. Where was Jesus when he he said these words just filled with hope? I mean, just look around. The the field there, there are just people, worshipers, people that are not worshiping God. They're just waiting to worship God. Very, very ripe, fruitful times. Where was he when he spoke that verse? He was in the heart of Samaria. He didn't speak it in the city of Jerusalem. And it's in the context of John 4 when he meets the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan. He's on the way north. It's all, it's all in the same time frame. And he per, she perceives him. First of all, she's shocked that he has anything to do with her because he's a Jew. And you're not really supposed to have anything to do with us. Remember, you hate us. What are you doing here? And you're asking for water? And then he proceeds to tell her, yeah, you have five husbands and a boyfriend at home. And that's when she perceives that he, well, you're a prophet. You know those things. It's the only way you could know them. So there's something spiritual that takes place during this conversation. And then uh, later on, they start talking about where's the best place to worship. We say it's on this mountain. The Jews say it's on this mountain. And Jesus makes a comment about God is seeking worshipers. He's seeking people that will worship him in spirit and truth. And 
it's and, and then she goes home to her little town and she says, meet the man that tells me everything about me, knows everything about me. And they do. And there's a revival right there in Samaria, basically. And verse 29 of John four says they uh, they went out of the town and they were coming to him. And then verse 42 We have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Something very dynamic is happening in a land that God's people had pushed to the side. It's a place that you don't evangelize. These are the people that you don't want to talk to. They've been forsaken. Now they were a mixed people. And they were very messy to the Jews because they were messy Uh, racially being mixed and they were also very, very messy theologically because of the syncretism of religious religions that had seeped into this land. So, yeah, it is a really messy place for the people of God. They didn't want anything to do with it. And here Jesus is beginning his ministry saying, look at the just look around you. God's heart is for people to worship him. And in this place, there are people That desire to worship him. They just need to be told the gospel. They just need to be led into the truth. They just need the light to shine on them a little bit. Now you're going to be amazed. And I hope that you come to Sunday school. And listen Jonah. Because we have been building up four chapters. Finally Matthew saying Jesus is the king. And now we're getting to hear from the king. And that kind of went. Those four chapters went better with Ephesians. It's amazing to me that the remainder of the chapters in Matthew, and I don't know how long Cork will be in Jonah, but there's going to be remarkable similarities because, in essence, Jonah is in a New Testament book in the Old Testament, so to speak. Same issue, same problem with the human condition of the heart and also people, the ministry mindset, and what is God really after. So let me just close by making some application here. Now, why bring all of this up? Well, we've been talking about providential times. We've been talking about providential places. And the majority of the places that Jesus ministered were not where we often in our minds picture right there in the city, right there in the temple of Jerusalem. They're out They're in Samaria. They're even up there with the liberals, open minded people. The, the places that if you're a person of God, you really don't want to go and hang out with these people. You don't want to minister to these people. You want to stay tight into your own little group. Jesus is pushing the envelope here because it needs to be pushed. He's 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 re, he's shining the light on the original plan of God's boundaries that we have closed off, perhaps, or at least they had closed off as the people of God. So the application is, first of all, it just reveals us the heart of Jesus, reveals to us the heart of God, that he has all peoples in mind when we're talking about the Christian faith, when we're talking about having fellowships like we do today, celebrating this anniversary. God's mind is open. He wants people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue to enjoy him and worship him like this. It's never supposed to get so cozy that we that we cut ourselves off and start deciding, no, we can't minister to these people anymore. And I do that in my mind because people, there are certain people groups that are hard to minister to. And they are very messy theologically and hard to break through. And yet that's not God's boundary. I just soon stay here with you because I know you agree with most of what I say. 
You don't rub me the wrong way. You don't say things that make me want to put my hands around your neck and shake you. For the most part. And yet, just like we're learning in Jonah, that's not how God thinks. And if we're to represent God, we're not representing him if that's the way we think. If if we're determining who we will or will not share the gospel. So we're, we're just seeing God's heart here for the lost. Jesus is breaking this mold because it needs to be broken. God is seeking worshipers from every place. Second. And I think another way of application is the Jewish people, God's people, couldn't see this plan of God beautifully, wonderfully unfolding. I mean, Jesus, everything he says is done and does is fulfilling centuries old prophecy and promises from God. It's coming one day. I'm going to do this and blow your socks off. And here is Jesus doing this. And they can't see it because they are so focused on themselves. They're so focused on being the people of God and walking in the righteousness of God and obeying the laws of God. They're so focused on their own little lives and world and, and comfort and the, and, and the laws that they had set up for themselves that they missed the divine plan of God. It became way too much about them and their faith. And God got out of the picture. Now, how dangerous is that? Did they know God's word? Oh, yeah. Did, did they love it? As far as they were concerned, absolutely. They treat it with the greatest respect. And yet the God, God personified, they don't know him. And it's possible to get in these kind of groups and become so comfortable and interpret God's word in such a way that we're really not living for God at all and not understanding God at all. And not reaching the heart. See, Jesus didn't meet their criteria. Now, he didn't meet their criteria. He didn't do things the way they did. And so they shunned him. You know, do, do we set up criteria that is man-made and get all fixated and obsessed with things that really hinder the work of God? And this is this is a message for me, for sure. Because sometimes we might think that we're kingdom minded. And it really we're just all about ourselves and what church does for me or what God does for me or what I think it ought to look like. And you got no business going there or talking to those people. And what just happened to my heart when I think like that? It's not thinking like God's. Jonah teaches us that and Jesus is going to Jesus is going to nail this. Matthew's going to nail this home for us for a long time. Well, for 28 chapters, I'm going to nail it home for a long time as we preach through this. So just to close, we, we want to be challenged and mindful of where God plants us. And then when we're there, what does he want us to do? Are there are there people in this area that perhaps he wants to see them worshiping him in the context of the community, a Christian community? What does he equipped us 
to do. Yeah, they may be liberal-minded. They may be messed up and ask all kind of crazy questions and have five or be faithful to five or ten different kinds of religions and all contradictory in their thought. Yet, and we want to write them off. I was encouraged uh, about testimony from Kevin. He doesn't know I'm going to share this, but Kevin Warren at our last community group, uh, he was in the ambulance EMT transport, and he was divinely placed there with this guy who was a Catholic, uh, not a very good Catholic, very liberal-minded Catholic, but still called himself a Catholic and a homosexual. And he had all kind of views and ideas, and they were contradictory. And uh, I'll just say this for Kevin, and I may be represented, but if I were Kevin, I would be thinking, God, i got to get a different partner. I don't want to talk to this guy. I don't like the way he thinks. He annoys me. He's nothing like, uh, he doesn't hold my values. And Kevin hung in there, and he just kept quoting Scripture, quoting Scripture, quoting Scripture. When it was all said and done, the guy respected him for not just throwing opinions at him, but actually using God's word. That might have been the only thing he respected because Kevin confronted him. But look, look where God planted Kevin. And there, somebody very religious, but liberal minded and, you know, trying to, you know, you know, we see it every day. Where does God plan us and why are we where we are? There's a divine purpose. Every believer has a divine purpose in every step and in every place. May the Spirit come upon us as promised in Acts 1.8. And may we be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. May God bless the preaching of His Word.